Well, let's read together uh, God's Word, starting at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Philip, Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with his reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known uh, to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that this field was called in their own language, Alcadema, that is, field of blood. For it was written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of, these, so one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. So the question is, as we walk through the book of Acts, one of the questions that we have got to answer together as a family and and all of those who call themselves Christians have got to answer the, the question how do we know that Christianity is absolutely true how do we know that it's it's true that it and that that it's not just something that is subjective to me you know well it's something that I believe well but it's not for you how do we know that Christianity is true that it is absolutely critical that we know The truth, that it is true objectively, not just subjective. It's subjective to my convictions and what I believe to be true. How do we know that Christianity is credible and true? And these are the important questions that we have got to answer first for ourselves and then for whoever we we have to witness, that God calls us to witness to. How do we know that our faith is true? And as we have seen already, that the foundation for our Christian faith is a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is based on that. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that is, if, our, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then 
your faith is worthless. So how do we know that this is true? Our evidence for the resurrection hinges on the credibility of its witnesses. I don't know if how many of you have ever watched any of these court shows or even uh, what is the guy the the police guy out in Bolingbrook um, just a whack job he's killed he's been married like four times is you know, Drew Peterson you know the guy right there just watching the video clips from him I go there's something shady about that guy no matter what he says there is something not very credible about him. And so even in throughout the book of Acts, there this constant word that is repeated, we are to be witnesses. And the truth of Christianity is based on the witness, the credibility of a witness. So the question that Luke is dealing with as the book unfolds is how is the credibility what is the credibility of our witness? And he begins by assuring his first reader, Theophilus, that Jesus Christ presented himself first alive to these men with many, many convincing proofs. And now he wants to show that these men were godly men of integrity, whose witnesses we can trust to this day. So when we, when we study Scripture together, we have got to, a good question for us to ask is, why did the author include this material at this point? Reading through any book, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, an author will place something in the text for a purpose. So under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, why did Luke include this section here? What was the purpose of it? What was his line of reasoning? What is his purpose for including this section, verse 12 through 26. Luke here wants his readers to see that Christianity is founded on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is a major theme of the apostolic witness throughout the whole book. He wants us to, to know, and this is our theme for the morning, he wants us to know that Christianity is credible. Because it's based on the witness of apostles who were godly men of integrity. Our text this morning reveals five, five qualities about these 12 men who possess uh, what made them credible witnesses. And the first one that we can see, the first thing that Luke points out is that these men, these apostles, believed fully in Jesus Christ as Lord. They fully believed it with all of their hearts. These apostles had spent three years living with Jesus. They saw him when he was tired. They saw him when he was hungry. They saw him when he was arrested. They saw him when he was mistreated. They saw him finally when he was crucified. Surely they knew and affirmed that he was fully human. Fully human. And yet they also affirmed that he was fully God. Peter here calls him the Lord Jesus. Lord meaning God. It is likely in light of the reference to Lord Jesus in verse 21 that when they prayed to the Lord in verse 24, they were praying to Jesus as God. Even Thomas, the doubter, 
had exclaimed to the risen Lord, to the risen Jesus, my Lord and my God. So they were men who were fully convinced that Jesus Christ was God. He is who he said he is. And although we don't have much information on on most of the apostles, we do have know enough to say that they were all men who were dramatically changed, dramatically changed by their encounter with Jesus Christ. They were dramatically changed. Think about the relationships you have here on earth. Is there one person that you have a relationship which has so dramatically changed everything about you? Hopefully husbands and wives can say, yeah, my spouse. Maybe it could be a spiritual mentor. Maybe it could be a parent. But these people were so dramatically changed. You got Peter himself. When he witnessed that first miraculous catch of fish, he fell before Jesus and he proclaimed, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Then you, you have Matthew, who had been an extremely wealthy outcast of a tax collector. He was living the posh life, a very comfortable life, but he gave it all up, all up, and turned from his greedy, crooked ways to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. Dramatically changed. And then you have who? Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was part of a radical political move that killed tax collectors for sport. All these men were radically changed by their relationship with Jesus Christ. And here is Matthias, who is joining Matthew, Simon, Peter, and, and the, the zealot, and this, the whole apostolic band. While we don't know much about what happened to these guys, early tradition tells us that most of them gave their lives, gave their complete lives to proclaiming the message that Jesus Christ is Lord risen from the dead. It did not only change their pocketbooks or their their social life, it changed them in such a way dramatically that they gave themselves to the point of martyrdom. How has your interaction with Jesus, your relationship with Jesus affected you? Is it this nice, casual, uh, it's just me and Jesus walking down this primrose path? But are you fully convinced that he is the Lord, that he is God? And has that so transformed you? But it wasn't only the apostles that were changed, but also Jesus' mother, Mary, and his brothers were a part of this group. You get that there at the end of verse 14. This is the last reference ever in the Bible to Mary. She and Joseph had other children after Jesus was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit, but it is implicit in her being here that she believed in Jesus as her Savior and Lord. She was with them all. And also, Jesus' brothers had not been believers just a few months before, and at one point, they thought that he was absolutely insane. You can see that in Mark chapter 3. They thought he had lost it all. But Jesus appeared even to his half-brother James 
after the resurrection, leading to what? His conversion. His other brothers may have also seen the risen Lord, or James may have brought the witness to them. But their presence here indicates that they now believed in Jesus' deity and in the truth of the resurrection. And the point is that each one of those who were gathered in that upper room were there because he or she had a dramatic, life-changing experience with Jesus Christ. They had a personal encounter with Jesus. Although many of them had been thrown into doubt and confusion by his resurrection, they now fully believed that he was raised from the dead. And with Thomas, they believed that he is Lord and God. And that is honestly the starting point for our Christian faith. Have you, have you come to know Jesus Christ personally? Has he changed your heart from being self-seeking to being subject to him? Christianity is not just a matter of accepting certain doctrines or following a moral code, although those things are important. It is primarily a matter of coming to know God through Jesus Christ. It's a matter of receiving forgiveness of their sins and eternal life through believing in his death and his resurrection for your sins. They were convinced that he was fully God. So that's the first qualification for these, these guys. Now as we go through this one and the others, I want you to be thinking, because in the middle of June, you are going to be receiving via email and it's going to be available in your hands for us to nominate people to be elders and deacons. This is not just this apostolic event that happened way some 2,000 years ago. These are also qualities that we need to be looking into people who are going to be leading our church. Do these people that you nominate fully believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Have they had such a personal encounter with Jesus Christ that it transforms their lives, that they are willing to die for the gospel of Jesus Christ? This good news, they believe it so much. Man, I believe. Lord, take my whole life. So that's the first quality, one for the, the apostle who replaced Judas, but also for elders and deacons in our church? Do they fully believe in Jesus Christ as Lord? The second, second trait that we see here in this text is that the apostles were men of obedience and prayer. They were gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus told them to stay there and wait. They were told to stay there and wait. Now, that is not an easy thing to do. One, because Jerusalem was not particularly uh, friendly to believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, what did they just get done doing? Crucifying him. So Jesus says, stay there. Stay in hostile territory. You know, if it was me, what would I do? I'd find a nice villa outside in the country where it's nice and comfortable away from the city center that just crucified, brutally crucified, the one that I believe to be God. I would go to the safe zone. 
but they were commanded to stay there. It would have been far easier just to move out and get out of Dodge. Besides that, not only that, they had all kinds of living expenses that they had to contend with. So earning money would have also, as a, as a guy, that would have been a, one of the top things on my head is, man, I need to start building some cash. Jesus has been gone for some, going on 50 days now. How are we going to sustain our, our way of living? But they stayed in Jerusalem. They stayed there. Or maybe they were even thinking about the Great Commission. Jesus told us that we need to go. We need to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey, baptizing them. Maybe we better giddy up and get going. But Jesus told them to wait. So they waited. And one of the things that I, I am constantly learning is that waiting on the Lord is probably one of the hardest things to learn in the Christian life. Why doesn't God just hurry up? Doesn't he know that life is short enough the way it is? But so often God just says, wait. He just says, wait. But there's everything inside of me that just says, listen, okay, I I heard you wait But this is an opportune moment. Giddy up, let's go. Lord, are you coming along with me? Because we're taking this hill. But God so often just says, wait. And the apostles' obedience shows that they were not self-willed men trying to build their own empires. We can trust their witnesses. To wait. It, It makes so much Passages like Isaiah 40, which I think it often is just this terribly misquoted passage. Those of you who have a Bible, just turn to page 600, Isaiah chapter 40. Just th- This is one of those coffee cup kind of things, Christian coffee cups, you know what I'm talking about, oh, or family bookstore kind of things. If we just uh, do this, starting at, at verse 28, well, Let's do uh, starting at 30, because this is the misquoted piece. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You know, that's one of those coffee cups with a really brilliant eagle on it that is just kind of flying or you get this runner who's running, and it's like, oh, yeah, God will get... But what does it say? Back up to 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is just unsearchable. I love that. His understanding of everything is unsearchable, so how are we going to be able to understand God's timing and his wisdom? It's unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall, grow, shall be faint. It, those of you who are youths, you know, you, you know what you're talk, talking about. That's not me yet, but um, young men shall fall exhausted, but those who wait. 
those who wait for the Lord. Not for your own agenda. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Part of our obedience and the obedience that we see in these these early apostles is that they waited. They were obedient. Jesus said, go and wait. Wait. Be still. Because if you wait on my timing, you wait for what I promise, (laughs) your strength shall be renewed. But what did they what did they do while they waited? That's the other question that so, so many of us just struggle with. Well, what do you do? Do you just sit on your hands? Are you, are you just kind of passive? Do you just, okay, well, God, I'll know when God's going to answer my prayers because the mailbox flag is going to be up or I'm going to put out, you know, this as a sign and then I'm going to just, that's, that's why I'm going to know we're going to move into activity time. What did they do while they waited? Verse 14 says, they devoted themselves to prayer. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They gave themselves fully to the work of prayer. What what, what is my way of dealing with the waiting? I plan. I do all the activity necessary so that when God gives the green light, all right, Here's here's what we're going to do now. They devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer. What were they praying for? We have no idea. They may have been praising God for the times they experienced with Jesus after his resurrection. They may have been praying for wisdom and carrying out the Great Commission. And they may have been praying for the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised. You may ask, Why would you pray for something that Jesus had already promised? That that seems ridiculous. The the gift is going to be coming. Why be praying for it? It's a guarantee. Why pray for it? Well, Scripture commands us. You even see it in the Lord's Prayer. Father who, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Praying for thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, God has already guaranteed that his kingdom is going to come, right? And that his will is going to be done. He's sovereign, he's king over all, but yet Jesus commanded us, pray in this way. Pray that your kingdom, that my kingdom is done. God's promises should motivate us to pray and to persist in prayer until they are a reality. Because we know that he will fulfill his word. And like the apostles here, we should join with others in prayer. Making sure that we're not at odds with one another, but rather that we are in one mind. As Philippians chapter 1 says, that we are to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. That is why I absolutely believe that when we call the church together to pray once a month, that it is critical that we come together as a church once a month. That we together are obedient in praying together, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together. Our prayer shows dependence on the Lord and our submission to follow. 
So when we call the church together to pray, it's not just a, hey, we're going to just collect some prayer requests and throw some stuff up. It is our true belief that God's promises will come true and he calls us to pray together. Second Tuesday prayer comes every second Tuesday of the month. Join us. Be a part of it. This past Tuesday when we prayed together, it was rich. It was powerful. And everybody here was prayed for by name. Yes, everybody here was prayed for by name. Because the men were men of obedience and prayer, we can trust their resurrection, their, their witness about the resurrection. Number three, the apostles were also men of the word. That's the third qualification. And also a third qualification of somebody who is going to be an, an elder or a deacon of our church. A man or woman of prayer and obedience, but a man and woman of the word of God. It is absolutely critical. Peter not only was attending prayer meetings, but he was also spending time in God's word. His sermon on the day of Pentecost is loaded, and we're getting there. It was loaded with scripture, which he recites from memory. Did you hear that? He was a simple fisherman, a blue-collar guy who was reciting Old Testament scripture from memory. Here in this section, he quotes from Psalm 69 and, and Psalm 109, the reasons why Judas needs to, his, his apostleship place needs to be replaced. He went back, quoted some random verses off the top of his head as they were praying together. Finally, he got up in front of the 120 brothers and said, listen, here's the reasons why we need to find somebody to replace him. And through his, his little Rolodex of scripture that it was just going through his head, because Jesus had been spending time with him those 40 days after his resurrection, teaching him from the Old Testament, hey, this is why. They were men of the word. More than likely, these apostles were up in this upper room just pouring over Scripture, seeking to understand in more depth the things that Jesus had been explaining. explaining. Peter appealed to Psalm 109 as the justification of why Judas' must, office must be filled by another. Jesus told the 12 that they would sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem had 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 foundation stones with the 12 names of the apostles written on them. If the apostles were to be credible witnesses to Israel, it is important that this symbolism even continues. Thus, they had to find a replacement for Judas. The point is that these apostles were men of the word. Men of the word. 
who were appealing to the word to explain the, the difficulty of Judas's defection and his death and the need to replace him with another credible witness. They teach us that we, as God's people, should go, all go to the word of God with the difficulties that we encounter. I want it to be said of me. I want it to be said of us all that we go to God's word in the good times, in the bad, in, in the times where life has just seemed to be flatlined, that we are people who just desire to be in God's word, that we just devour God's scripture that he has given, given to us. We believe that all of scripture is breathed out by God and therefore useful for us, that we are just constantly in the morning, in the noon, in the night, whenever we have an opportunity that we're memorizing scripture, we are finally, we're always in scripture as much as humanly possible. I want to be described as Spurgeon described John, John Bunyan, who, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And this, this is what he said about John, John Bunyan. His whole being was saturated with Scripture. His whole being. Prick him anywhere, and you will find that his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text. For his soul is full of the word of God. That's a high standard. And I'm not sure this is fully true of even me yet. I'm growing in this. I'm desiring to be this kind where you prick me anywhere. Any kind of life circumstance of what flows from me, Scripture. These men were men of the word when we are looking for elders for Missio Dei Church, I want us to be looking for men who love the Word of God, not just from a distance, but they are in the Word of God. When we look at their Bibles, their Bibles are a little ragtag. They're highlighted, they're circled, they're underlined. There's notes on the side. They're, they're men who just are growing in their appetite for the Word of God. They long to be in it. They want to study it. They want to uncover the mysteries of the gospel. Angels are peering into it, but they want to be living in the word. Those are the kind of men that we want, women that we want in our church. We want Titus two women who are discipling younger women based off the word of God. We want women who are strong, not just emotionally or strong as women in, in their household and manage a household well, which is extremely important. But all of that feeds out of what? Out of God's design, which is revealed in Scripture. Those are the kind of men and women that we want in our church. Therefore, we can believe in the testimony of the apostles because they were men whose lives had been changed with a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. They were men who were obedient and waited, and they prayed, and they were also men of the word. Fourth, they were men, they were apostles, the apostles were careful witnesses of the Lord Jesus. These apostles were not just these uh, religious geniuses who created Christianity. 
They were not even profound philosophers. They were not even primarily theologians, which for, for most of us should be a, oh, thank God. Because you're going, theologians? That sounds like a big word and a big deal. There's big books written about it, whole libraries written about theology. Men who are bigger thinkers than me. These guys were not primarily theologians, although theology is absolutely critical for us to understand or begin to understand God. What were they? They were witnesses. Good witnesses do not invent stories. They, were, they truthfully tell exactly what they have seen and what they had heard. Therefore, Peter, in setting forth the qualifications for the replacement of Judas, states that the man must have been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry, starting with John the Baptist. That man had to be there seeing the, the heavens open up and, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, and he goes all the way to witness the resurrection. That's the man that we want. A man who had been with Jesus. And it's important for us to affirm the Christian faith is founded primarily on a historical event that has many credible witnesses, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I'm not minimalizing the importance of Christ or the cross. Rather, I'm affirming what Scripture affirms that the foundation of our faith is a verifiable historical event. And if it is true, if this event is true, everything else follows. If it's false, nothing else follows. So for us, we need to understand that it was a historic, life-changing event. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that the apostles spent the rest of their lives proclaiming that this is true. They were witnesses. And each of us must consider their witness and either accept it or reject it. And here's, here's the deal, bringing it back to our time. We are to be credible witnesses. When put on, your faith is put on the stand. In your workplace, what do you testify to? What do you witness about? Is there anything in your life that you say, this is absolutely true, and here it's verifiable, not only with Scripture, which is my primary source, but it has radically changed me. And it continues to change me, and I will be a witness. And I'm, I'll go down on the books. On this one. It, this is true. Scripture testifies to it, but my life also testifies to the goodness of Jesus Christ. And I'll stand on it. I'll die for it because it is true. Does your life testify? Does it witness to the truth of the resurrection? 
to the truth of the resurrection, which is a historical fact. And I want you to think about, if your life testifies to the truth of the resurrection, we talk about how we are baptized with Christ. And when you're baptized, they don't hold you down, right? There's a point where you come up or else you stay dead. You get your last breath underwater. Your lungs are filled with water. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, you testify about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your life. What do you do? You come up and you are alive. We are alive with Christ. And the same power that raised Christ from the grave is also now dwelling in us. And so do we believe in the power of the resurrection as not only a historical event, but a personal event? Man, I am now new and alive in Christ. My life is new and vibrant. It's alive in me. And I have got to testify to that historical and personal event in my life that Christ saved me from the dead. I died to myself, and now I'm risen with Christ. We look for elders and deacons in our church, leaders, members who are desiring to be in any kind of leadership position. We are looking for people who have died and are dying to their sins, but they are coming alive with Christ, and their life is a testimony. It is a witness to what Christ has done and is doing in their life. So as you're watching people's lives amongst our congregation, who might I nominate? I am looking for somebody who, whose life testifies to the resurrection they are constantly a new life they're constantly being made new and they testify to it they testify i raise my right hand and i do solemnly swear that it is true and my life is the evidence it is true so here's the final reason the apostles were not political power brokers, but rather they submitted to God's sovereign will. We can all, all of us, if you've been in the, the church long enough or you've just been alive, you know that there are people who abuse positions of, of authority even in church history. We can all point to one person, more than likely. I can point to a number of people that I know as pastors or elders or deacons or someone who has some kind of church position who have abused their positions of authority to get what they want, to drive it their way. Sadly, many Protestant churches operate on a, on a political basis with various factions vying for control. Sometimes those factions are using their, their power of money and influence. Well, this isn't going to happen. And if that happens, I am withholding my funds. Or if that person doesn't get in, I'm out. Or if we bring that pastor in or that person on, I'm done. But we don't see that anywhere here in this, this section in chapter 1. 
They were not vying for political power in any way. These, these, early, these 11 remaining apostles weren't going, okay, we've got to be careful who we bring in here because that person could screw up our whole good thing. We've got to be careful here. What did they do instead? They knew that their privileged position was a ministry. You see that in verse, verse 25. It says, uh, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They viewed it as a ministry. And the word here means being a servant. When it came to replacing Judas, they did not pick the most politically correct man for this office. They didn't maneuver behind the scenes, lining up, uh, lining up votes for their favorite candidates and say, okay, there's 11 of us, and if we do our, our numbers right, we can get a majority vote for this guy over here. They, you don't hear about any, th- any of that behind the scenes. Even though they were quite diverse in, in background and personality, which could have led to a terrible power struggle, you had, you had Matthew, who was a rich, affluent man, and you had Simon the Zealot, both ends of the spectrum. It could have been an absolute bloodbath with the election of this guy. But instead, the 11 all submitted themselves to God's sovereign will. First, what did they do? They listed the spiritual qualifications. The man had to follow Jesus from his earliest days of ministry. And he had to be a witness to the resurrection. Of all the time that Jesus walked this earth in his ministry, there were only two qualified. That makes me feel good. That even Jesus, there were only two. And he had, there were like 120 persons that Peter was addressing to. 120 and there were only two. One of them seemed absolutely outwardly better, more qualified. And you, you can see this here. Uh, who did they ha- have starting in 23? They put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. Barsabbas meaning born on the Sabbath. So, hey, he's starting off right. And then Justice, which means righteous. So even his name, people go, man, that sounds like that, that guy is the one. And then did you see how they describe Matthias? By name only. And Matthias. So we've got Joseph that we call Barsabbas, who is also nicknamed Justice. Obviously, you know, we're all reading this go, man, he, he's born on the Sabbath day, and he's just, and he's right. He's a right, right man to line up. He's perfect. And then there's Matthias. So what did they do? They prayed. They prayed. And what did they pray? I love this. You, Lord, in verse 24. You, Lord. Who are they referring to, Lord? Jesus. You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. Show us, Lord. You picked the original 12. We need you to pick 
the final man. And then how did they, how was the decision made? They determined the Lord's choice by casting lots. This involved putting a man's name on a stone that had equal weight. The stones were kind of equal weight, equal shape, equal size. Put it into a bag. It was either shaken and then the first stone that was fallen out or the first name that was picked out was the one chosen. And that's how Matthias was chosen. It was not by votes. It was not by these kind of things. It was by lot. Now, some of you are going, so why, don't, why doesn't Missy O'Day do that? Right? Let's just put all the names in the hat and pick out this person or that person, and here you go. There are churches who still continue to do this. But this is the last, this one in Acts chapter 1 is the last instance of it in the Bible. Indicating that since the Holy Spirit has been given to the church, it is no longer a valid means of determining God's will. Some churches use this method, but I wouldn't recommend it. And my time here, I will never, I will make sure that this is not done because I believe that God has given us the Holy Spirit which indwells in us and gives us the ability to determine the mind of Christ. And that's what the apostles, but the apostles, prior to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, use the Old Testament method. They weren't voting for their favorite candidate. They were submissive to God's will. They let Jesus choose Judas's replacement. So in a jury trial, the attorneys tried to discredit the adversary's witnesses. If they can convince the jury that their opponent's witness is questionable, they can win the case. God wants us to know that our Christian faith is credible. Absolutely credible. It's not based on religious speculations, but on the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That event proves that he is God. And everything else from that follows. We must decide this morning. We must decide tomorrow again. If this is true, if this is absolutely true, will we be like Judas? And ignore the evidence and follow our own selfish desires that lead to destruction? Or will we accept the apostolic witness as true and like these early apostles, follow Jesus? Believing that he is fully Lord, will we, will we be obedient and listen to Jesus Christ? Will we be people of prayer Will we be men and women of God's word? Will we be people who don't vie for our own personal comfort zone or our own right person, but submit fully to God's will? 
as we look forward as a church for future elders and deacons. We are looking for them, along with the rest of us, for the bar to constantly be going up. For elders, we are looking for godly men who believe fully in Jesus Christ as Lord. We're looking for men who believe that they are to be obedient, that they are men of prayer. We're going to get to deacons later on. And why, why did the, the apostles open up the office of deacon? So they can be, do what? Anybody know? Teaching and prayer. They, they want to be focusing on the ministry of the word, and they want to be focusing on prayer. We are looking for men as elders of the church who are desiring to focus on the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. But it's not just reserved for those spiritual super giants. I want to see that in Connor Anderson. I want to see that in Maggie Pender. Men, women, doesn't matter on their age, that we are growing in our love for the Word of God because we believe this to be true. That we give our whole lives fully to Jesus Christ. And that we're obedient to wherever he calls us. I'm going to give the blessing at the end, but I want to give you the heads up on it. This is a blessing, the benediction from uh, Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you. May the God of all peace equip you. To do what? Equip you with everything that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. See, we're looking for people who are submitting themselves to the will of God, submitting themselves to this, to be equipped, to be trained up, to do what? Whatever it is that God calls them to do. Every one of these apostles died and most of them died a brutal death. We're looking for men and women who are willing to die to their, their selfish prides and their needs and desires. Willing to die and just say, you know what, there is a better life that is for me. So as a church, do we, do you submit to his calling?
to be credible witnesses? And does your life testify to that? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that our lives testify powerfully to the credibility of Christianity, to the credibility of our faith. God, I pray that every person here this morning is one who is willing to be counted as faithful. And not in a passive way, but in a very active way. Lord, I pray that every husband and wife, every man, every woman, every child, every high schooler, every college student, Lord, desires to be counted as a faithful witness to the truth of the resurrection. And Lord, that they desire to be men and women who are so immersed in the word of God that it just saturates their whole being, that if they are pricked anywhere, that their blood just flows bibline. That when they speak, that when they work out their lives, Lord, that Scripture just flows out from them. And it testifies to the truthfulness, the truthfulness of the risen Lord in our resurrected lives with Him. God, would you work in us this morning, create in us a new, a passion, Lord, the, the prayer of Laura Reddig last week that we become people who are more passionate about your things, of reaching lost people, of being faithful witnesses in our community. Lord, would that be true of us? Not because we just want to be good moral people, but because you have so deeply changed us. God, would that be true of us? So plant deep within us. Whisper sweetly and forcefully the truth of the gospel in our ears and our hearts. And may they penetrate the deep, dark places in our lives that are needing so to be liberated from sin and anything that traps us. May we believe fully in this good news of Jesus Christ's life, perfect life, his necessary death and his resurrection and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. May we believe in that and understand that it has implications for us and how we live today. Change us, O oh God. For your glory's sake. pray this in the name of Jesus, to whom be all the glory.